The following program has the potential, dare I say, probability to give offense. It's Monday, December 7th, 2020 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca and I did it. I did it for you. I watched all of Trump's 46 minute rant with those charts, which he said that it just wasn't fair that he didn't win because some people had told him that he had one. It's about big leads on election night, tremendous leads, leads where I was being congratulated for a decisive, easy victory. Well, just because some people dumb enough to attend an indoor watch party during a pandemic congratulated you. Oh, wait, it wasn't just the dumb. Many very smart people have congratulated me on all we've done. Well, that explains it. There was also 45 minutes, 41 seconds more in that rant. I'll condense the entire thing for you right here. I went from leading by a lot to losing by a little. And that's right here. That's at 3.42 in the morning. That's Wisconsin. A terrible thing. Terrible, terrible thing. The Speaker of the House of a certain state said, Sir, I expected to lose my seat. And instead, because of you and because of that incredible charge and all of those rallies, we had a tremendous victory. And everybody knows it. You were much more popular than me, sir. They were sent to dead people by the thousands. In fact, dead people, and we have many examples, filled out ballots, made applications, and then voted, which is even worse. And register they did in levels that don't exist. Just 0.2%, that's substantially less than 1%. Mail-in ballots had been stolen from mailboxes and hidden under a rock. There was more, lots more. I would say one out of every eight sentences didn't contain a falsehood. Some examples of non-lies, full sentences that were non-lies, quote, we used to have what was called election day, And I have no higher duty than to defend the laws and the Constitution of the United States. And if we are right about the fraud, Joe Biden can't be president. Those were, by the way, literally the only non-lies I found in the first 10 minutes of the speech. But to me, the interesting part is certainly nothing of what the president said. The interesting part is why I watched it. I wouldn't do it if I didn't have this show. And even though I do have this show, I was still a little on the fence. Nothing to me seems more disposable than Donald Trump's 46-minute pout on YouTube. But then I read Zeynep Tufeki writing about what Trump was doing. And even though how, pace Ben Wittes, the malevolence was not just being tempered by the incompetence, it was entirely being blotted out by it, even though that was happening still important to pay attention. Quote, the incoherence and incompetence of the attempt do not change its nature, however, nor do those traits allow us to dismiss it or ignore it until it finally fails on account of that incompetence. Ignoring a near catastrophe that was averted by the buffoonish, half-hearted efforts of its would-be perpetrators invites a real catastrophe brought on by someone more competent and ambitious. So she is saying attention must be paid, not credulity, but certainly awareness. I do think, however, that we are seeing signs that we have all moved on from being aggrieved by Trump collectively, our agreed upon target of aggrievement. A sure sign of this is that we've moved on to being aggrieved by David Sedaris, 
The humorist delivered a commentary for CBS Sunday morning in which he proposed the idea of being able to fire on the spot horrible service workers. The citizen's dismissal to be used against, say, a lifeguard who ordered everyone out of the pool so she could do laundry or this example. I'd have liked to do the same to a salesperson who worked at a store where my sister and I bought a number of very expensive cups and saucers. The woman rang them up, and after I paid, she stood there blinking. I'm afraid I haven't got anything to put them in, she said. No bubble wrap or bags. So we should what, just carry the cups and saucers in our hands? Now you, you can't carry the cups in your hands. That is absurd. So Sedaris came up with this concept of the citizen's arrest or citizens' dismissal, and laid it on a nation more fragile and prone to chipping than the aforementioned drinkware. At worst, this was a comedic misstep, given the imperiled nature of retail. At best, it was a clarion call to just at least have something to put the cups in. But to me, it shows that we are striking out at different targets, like a target like the guy who did the Santa Land Diaries, right? Played an elf, got famous that way. Our shared collective target no longer compels. And in a way, that is a good thing. Unless you are, say, the subject of mounds and mounds and scads of scads of derision, which I was, by the way. I'll get to that in a second. A little worse than Sedaris, according to some statistics. That is the topic of my spiel. You will want to hear it. Uh, It could be the last one ever if I'm not invited back to do comedic riffs before they cut to the crested warbler sounds on CBS Sunday morning. And now, remembrances of things Trump. In this remembrance of things Trump, when Donald Trump met Emmanuel Macron in France. Now, our president and the French president had met before. It was in Brussels in 2017, when the two leaders engaged in an extremely long handshake that Macron later acknowledged was more than a handshake. Quote, my handshake with him, it's not innocent. He said he called it a moment of truth. So when the men next met, their wives were there. And Donald Trump immediately assessed the woman that France refuses to call their first lady, Brigitte Macron. You're in such good shape, Trump said of Brigitte. And then he turned to her husband, who at 39 was and is 25 years younger than his wife, and said, she's in such good physical shape. And to show you the power of diplomacy, no one threw up in their mouths. And this has been a remembrance of things Trump. But first, the show gets a little personal on this episode of The Gist. I had a wonderful life event a little over a week ago, and the central player in this event, well, that'd be Michelle. But the other central player comes on to discuss his role, the role of a giant man rat, a mischievous, highly intelligent human rat. You may have seen Buddy the Rat around town, dragging pizza or interacting with tourists or even aiding in a marriage proposal. Anyone could say they're a performance artist, but the man behind Buddy the Rat achieves a level of artistry and craft that you just have to listen to. Jonathan Lyons, up next. Still looking for the perfect holiday gift? Everything is 30% off at the Slate Shop now through the holidays. Maybe you're a Gabfest fan, a Slow Burn fan, a prudy devotee, devotee, prude. Maybe you're a gist diehard. Or maybe you and your family just support loving a news organization via clothing. There are other ways too, but you gotta wear your Slate Logo sweatshirt for just $34. Pretty good as sweatshirt pricing goes. And socks? 
What about socks? 30% off slate socks. Comfrey stylish, though lately in keeping with many of the other socks of their ilk, specifically left socks. Lead the fight against boring opinions and boring footwear with snazzy socks. North Carolina. Yeah, that's where they're made. U.S. Farms, nylon, lycra. I'm just naming fabrics at this point. Visit shop.slate.com with discounts automatically applied at checkout. You know why I'm playing it fast and loose with this ad? Because no advertiser is going to reject it and say, well, they weren't really happy. You have to do a redo. It's a house ad. I can let it go wild, baby. Shop at slate.com. 30% off. I'm here to tell you about one of the most attractive automobiles you're ever going to lay your eyes on. And it's not just how good it looks. It's everything that can do. For those who embrace the impossible, the Defender 110 is up for the adventure. This iconic vehicle has been redefined with thoroughly modern design. The exterior, which won me over, is reimagined with compelling proportions and precise detailing. The interior is built with integrity using the most robust of materials. The Defender capability is legendary, whether you're facing off-road challenges or harsh weather conditions. The Defender 110 lets you go further and do more. Cargo capacity means you got room for your gear. To drive the Defender is to do what you do via your intellect, via your passions in life. It is to explore with greater confidence. Ready for a wide range of adventures? The Defender family features the two-door Defender 90, the Defender 110, the Defender 130 that seats up to eight. Learn more at LandRoverUSA.com forward slash Defender. So a little thing about me last week, got engaged to be married. I am affianced. Here is a fiance, mine, Michelle. Say hello, Michelle. Hi, honey. So let's just tell the story of our first kiss and then bring it up to the engagement. It was many years ago. And after a long, fun night, mostly on the Lower East Side, we were walking through Tompkins Square Park. And uh, there are some inhabitants of Tompkins Square Park. If you don't know it, if you're not from the city, they're four-legged. They are rats. And I go in for the first kiss. And uh, it is granted. Would you say granted? Received? It's allowed. It's allowed. And then what happens? At that moment, a giant um, rat scurried past us uh, while we were having our first kiss. So um, that's always kind of been a joke for us about, you know, that moment. And we both thought it was hilarious, but also disgusting at the same time. (laughs) So cut to six or so years later, I take you through Tompkins Square Park on a ruse. You are told there is some barbecue to be eaten outside. You're perhaps a little bit confused. And then out of the corner of your eye, you look and you say, it's the rat. Can you explain who the rat is? The rat is an incredible performance artist who we follow on social media, and we've been a big fan of his videos. Um, He did an incredible reenactment of um, the New York City pizza rat uh, bringing that giant piece of pizza up the subway steps and also does these great sort of interactive pieces with people um, in the city, on the subway, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, on the street. And and we're we're big fans, and we watch the videos and love them. Um, all the time. So when you saw the rat, you were like, oh, this is a well-known New York commodity who's doing a little to bring some joy. And then it turned personal. From your perspective, can you say what happened? Sure. Yeah. Um, 
So we, I was so excited. It was like a celebrity sighting. Um, <laughs> we saw Buddy jump up onto the garbage can in the corner of the park. If and we haven't established, that is the name of the rat. <laughs> yes, Buddy the rat. He jumped up on the on the garbage can, and I was like, "Honey, honey, the rat's here!" And um, he started kind of scurrying around, interacting with people. Everybody was so excited to see him because you know he's he's kind of become iconic at this point. Um, so everybody was taking pictures and and video and everybody was paying attention. So it kind of drew a lot of attention to to the moment. But he kind of ran around uh, the tree. I guess at that moment he had grabbed the the ring box and, and magnetized it to his mask and kind of came scurrying towards us. Um, and it was at that moment that I recognized the ring box and I said, something's going on here because he kept coming closer and closer <laughs> towards us. Mike was kind of beckoning him towards us. So, um, and then he came over and uh, Mike grabbed the ring box and got down on a knee and asked me to marry him. And? Oh yeah, I said yes. She said yes. Well, thank you, honey. That was excellent. Thank you for your perspective on this. And now we are joined by the third member of this engagement party. Jonathan Lyons is an eclectic performer. I wanted to talk to him about his career, but I also wanted to have him on and say thank you. And what an, what an amazing moment that you were a huge part of. Thanks, Jonathan. Of course. It was my pleasure, Mike. I guess, can I tell the story of how this whole thing sort of blew up last month? Yeah. So I've been doing the rat for 10, 11 years, not really on the street so much. It was sort of on the shelf. And then a couple of years ago, I, I, I built this new mask and I knew I wanted to take it out. And I had an I had an inkling in my mind like, oh, this might go viral if I do it. It's pretty interesting. And in March, I started performing for this uh, a show that's broadcast every Saturday night on Zoom called Eschaton, mm-hmm. where it's basically a variety show, immersive theater kind of variety show, different performers are broadcasting from their own spaces but you're directed to a central hub and you can go from room to room it's very cool so i was doing the rat there every week developing the character and then about two months ago my friend todd strauss schulson he's a hollywood film director he did uh isn't it romantic and the final girls and harold and kumar three a very 3d christmas uh he reached out to me he's like i'm gonna be in soho for three weeks i'm bored i haven't done anything all year because of covid like let's shoot something and i said all right i mean i i have this rat i thought i always thought there's something we could do with that and so we met and just knocked out a story we said oh what do you, what, what what can the rat do i was like well like its whiskers can light up he can smoke a cigarette he can carry something with his mouth you know and so we took each we basically looked at what I could do and then built the story around each of those features. And we shot it uh, the last week of October, right before the election in Soho when the windows were being boarded up. It was a totally surreal environment and three and a half minute film. And after on our first night of shooting in Washington Square Park, I woke up the next day to a text from a friend with a link to Barstool Sports Instagram page. And it was like, dude, you're, a clip of you is going viral. Mm. And it was like getting 100,000 views an hour throughout the rest of the day. Just a dark, I'm not even doing it. I'm just the rat in the darkness, in the distance in Washington Square Park. So I realized it had, it had, it had I'd forgotten the fact that I had a, a premonition it might go viral. I was like, oh, okay, right, right, right. Now's the time. So we finished shooting the movie. And that's when I started going out and making my own content and putting it online. And that all that all started picking up. 
Now, because this is an audio medium and not a visual medium, people will not have seen you, but you get down. I mean, your haunches are way above your, I'm trying to think of the uh, physiology comparing the humans to a rat. Let's just put it this way. Your paws are deep on the ground and your snout is on the ground. And it's obviously, it's obvious that either you've actually studied rats or you've studied how humans perceive of rats because you have really authentic, I'm going to say rat-like movements. Tell me how you (laughs) develop those and how you develop the, either the a buddy character or just um playing a rat so the, the the actual work i'm doing is mask mask performance and it, that goes back to I, I, my first professional job outside of college was with a theater called imago theater they're based in portland oregon and they've been doing a show for probably almost 40 years now called frogs frogs with a z and it is literally frogs the show the curtain opens and there are three frogs on the stage staring at the audience and they just minutes they just sit there staring and it's amazing because the audience goes crazy for just not for not that they're not even moving uh it's just these beautiful paper mache masks and these really extreme body positions that the performers are in and then they and then the frogs start to move and they look at each other and they jump and it just the crowd goes crazy so i got to be a frog for four years um and then the show is full of all sorts of animals there's polar bears and penguins and lizards and alligators and I that's where I learned all these animal creature performance techniques and mask performance techniques. And we would we would tour the show nationally, uh, internationally. And then uh, they came to the new Victory Theater on Broadway a couple times. It's but uh, it's a on 42nd Street. It's like a children's theater presenting house kind of in and amongst the Broadway houses. And so I really that's that's where I picked up all this kind of crowd interaction and, you know, popping the mask on and going for it. So you stepped into or hopped into this established, okay. like you say, um, decades-long established show. Is is yeah, that right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, so when you're learning the techniques, are you just, do they have a, a formula? You, you have to match the other performers who did it before you and the other two performers on the stage. So what's that process like? They tell you right. how to act like us or how to act like frogs? They have established choreography for that show, so you you learn the choreography, but it's all very alive. You can't just it's not just doing movements. I mean, you you need to be thinking and feeling and responding and reacting in the moment just like any any sort of acting performance would call for. And then you learn little nuances. I mean, you do thousands of performances in front of live audiences. You don't, if you do the exact same thing down to the letter every single time, it's not going to be interesting for you or anyone. So you, you start to find little, you tweak, you know, and then the, 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 the most subtle movements, like you shift your shoulder here, sometimes will get a big laugh. So, huh? yeah, that's kind of how that happened. And then the, the actual mask making too. I was able, when, when I was inspired to make this mask, you know, 12 years ago, the rat mask. Yeah. The rat, the rat mask. Sorry. Mm-hmm. I was able to ask them, how do you, how do you even do it? What do I get? And I go to the store and get some clay, get a big block of clay and just carve a face and then put some paper mache on top of it. So I was able, that's kind of where I, where I learned that. And then in New York, I started working with a puppeteer named Basil twist. He, the, Basil twist is a really extraordinary visionary theater artist working with the medium of puppetry. He won a, a MacArthur Genius Grant and I've been a really close collaborator with him and he's he's so he's been someone I've always been able to go to and say like, hey Basil, I want, you know, I'm imagining the eyes of this rat mask blinking. What do I do? And he just knows how to, he explains 
what I need to do, what I need to get. So I've been very lucky to have those kind of mentors uh, around me as I've created this project. And the construction of the mask, is there, there are choices to be made there. You know, the beadiness of the eyes, how far back are they set? This gives us as humans a different feeling, whether we're being predator or prey, for instance. So did some approachability go into that? Yeah, that's, again, very hard for me to quantify. I didn't, I didn't sit down and draw a sketch or A, B test, like what would be scary versus approachable. I really just sat down with a block of clay and looked at it and started tearing pieces away and making grooves and coming up. I knew, you know, I knew it needed a snout and I knew it needed to fit over my head, but the actual shape uh, wasn't particularly intentional. I did, there were a couple techniques. They told me, you know, you want with with a really effective mask, you want deep grooves because the light that allows the light to catch it at different angles and kind of that that evokes emotion you know it almost it almost appears to be changing its its face even though it's a solid object mm-hmm. really deep grooves and then the painting of it you you paint the deeper grooves a darker color and the top grooves you highlight with a lighter color which again like just draws out the accents of the shapes and then the eyes i knew i wanted them to blink and so I had to construct the mechanism that allows them to blink first and then sculpt around it. So that determined part of the shape. And just to interrupt you on the blinking, I don't know. I mean, you've had several clips that have gone viral. I don't know that most people can even discern that they blink, but it must help in just getting the public on your side and somehow translates to the appeal of those clips that we see. Yeah, absolutely. And what where you can see them blinking is in the, the short film we made. Right. People can even get in the short in the short clips that are out there from the movie, from your other um, work. It's clear that you understand drama. These aren't just random meetings uh, of you and people in New York. Some of them seem that way, but they're almost all structured like scenes. They have a reversal in them, which is a core to drama. So there's a little bit of tension and something happens. I'm not saying they're all exactly a story, but there is an arc to everything you do. And you could tell that one of the reasons it works is that it's purposeful in its construction. Thank you for saying that. Yeah, and it's that 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 helps illuminate it for me too. I think something that's very important to me in all my work is narrative, uh, that there is a story being told. And I think that's why this is resonating with people as performance art in a way that a lot of traditional or what people understand as performance art maybe doesn't resonate or isn't quite as accessible because it's much harder to see. And I'm sure most of the artists do have a narrative behind it. It's just a little harder to see. And the, the, the story I'm telling is right at the surface. Right. Yes. So when he scurries through the UPS truck, that is, <laughs> that's called end scene, you know? <laughs> yeah, right. That's again, we're just walking the line of what, what is allowed and what is not allowed. You know? <laughs> As a rat does. <laughs> yeah. And again, also, again, I owe, I owe a debt to Blue Man Group for, for forging forging the path from obtuse downtown alienating performance art to, you know, global accessibility. Like Mm -hmm. they, they tapped into something where they're like, all right, if we, and their early production, their early shows were, were edgy. There was cursing and we, you know, weird. And they just started to realize like, Oh, if we, if we kind of temper this aspect of it, we can still, shock people with the intensity and strangeness of what we're doing, but in a way that is access that everyone 
no matter who you are, everyone around the world, every age can can understand and appreciate. Wow. So you drum, you do performance art. This is all this is also very impressive. And I want to say and the word that I want to use is generous because you were generous to me and Michelle. And as I listen to this interview, all your collaborators that you're always keen to point out and give credit to. So Jonathan, personally, I want to thank you. And uh, that was it was something that we'll never forget in our lives. And I think that your skill is a huge reason for that. Thanks so much, Mike. I really, really appreciate it. Jonathan Lyons is Buddy the Rat. You can see him all over social media and his film Rat is available on his YouTube page. That's Jonathan, all with O's, L-Y-O-N-S. Thanks so much, Jonathan. Bye, Jonathan. (laughs) And now the spiel. Over the last two weeks, I have tweeted about 25 times. I will now read you a few of those tweets. Okay, one... Uh, November 27th, when she played the Wicked Witch in The Wizard of Oz, Margaret Hamilton was 37. Billy Burke, who played Glinda, was 55. Then I tweeted on Saturday, the minimum salary for a fourth-year NBA player is 10 times that for a U.S. senator. And then, around Thanksgiving, I commented on an Ali Velshi of MSNBC tweet. He said, in 2019, about 35 million Americans were food insecure by the height of the COVID shutdowns. That number had skyrocketed to somewhere in the neighborhood of 100 million Americans. I tweeted, that number, 100 million, seems double the actual estimates from advocacy organizations. Still horrible, of course, but I think almost a third of the population being hungry is inaccurate. All right. I will now tell you something about these three tweets. Play a mental game with you, right? On one of the tweets, I got four comments and eight likes. On one of the tweets, I got 10 comments and 54 likes. And one, it's hard to be precise, but seems to have gotten 2,000 likes, but over 10,000 comments and retweets, the majority of which we can put in the camp of did not like. Why? Well, the charge was racism. Some said subtle racism, Many said, you knew what you were doing. So the question is, what was I doing? I was, as many of the 10,000 plus commentators told me, I was engaging in an old trope that athletes, especially black athletes, are overpaid. Yes, that was the tweet that was so angered. Me comparing the salary of U.S. senators to the minimum salary paid to a fourth-year NBA player. Actually, a fifth year. It's after four years of NBA play. Now, Do I think that NBA players are overpaid? Yeah, Russell Westbrook seems to be right now in a pretty pretty generous contract. You look at Timothy Mozgov, he got quite a deal. But no, in general, they're not overpaid. And it is because the NBA generates hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue. Their players are the people generating this revenue. They quite fairly get 60% of that revenue. It's the rare good example of workers getting fairly compensated for their value. Okay, so if my point isn't that NBA players are overpaid, what am I saying? Am I saying that senators are underpaid? That is actually an interesting question. I do think it's something to think about. I'll not fully explore it here, but the pay of a senator has not increased in the last 11 years. And in real purchasing power, it's somewhere near its lowest place since 1987. I think senators an important job. And I was noodling around, thinking about ways to think about the importance we put on being a senator. In our society, compensation and salary is a very important indicator of worth, right? Isn't it? I understand. It's not the only indicator. You know, 
you're not generating profits, it's hard to get paid a lot, but there are different theories of compensation. And it seems to me that senator at 174K is low compared to the importance of senator to all of us. Of course, if you say $174,000 a low salary, you'll get all this obvious immediate blowback. Low, what do you mean low? How's that low compared to who? Good question, compared to who? So what I needed was a contrast, a contrast to a, a job widely seen as not quite as vital to the functioning of our country as U.S. senator. First, I thought, well, maybe I can compare it to, say, the publishing rights or publishing revenue of one song by Nickelback. But it's too hard to figure. They sell their whole catalog. They don't break it out by song. It's not publicly available. So then I thought thought of professional athletes. You know, it would work best if I compared it to a not particularly great professional athlete. But here's the problem with saying, you know, a U.S. senator only gets paid one-tenth as much as Scott Kingry or Yoan Moncada, is that it picks on Scott Kingry and Yoan Moncada. And the next response is, who the hell is Scott Kingry? And you're like, oh, there's a second baseman for the Phillies. It's not very good. Why'd you pick him? Well, salary's literally 10 times the amount, 1.7 million. And you're off your point. So I thought, okay, What about minimum salary? I looked at the different league minimums. The NBA has the highest salaries. They have the highest minimums. And there, right there on the chart, was after four years, the NBA pays its players $1.737 million. Senate salary, $174,000. There it was, 10 times. Voila, the treat. Soon thereafter, Jamel Hill, formerly of ESPN, currently of The Atlantic, tweeted out to her 1.3 million followers, quote, gee, I wonder why you picked the NBA. I'll read the quote exactly. What it could about those players that made them qualify for such a dog whistle comparison. Anybody got any guesses? I'm truly stumped. So because she guessed at my motivations and guessed wrong and did so in such an engaging manner and with such a prominent account, thousands of people began picking up on the sentiment and telling me to rethink my life choices. Of the Hundreds of responses that I could read, and I tried to engage with a few. Some were just too nasty to even bother. Some were okay. Some were kind of funny. Some were true, but none were true and worthwhile. So there were true things like, you're talking about taxpayer money, you idiot. The idiot part isn't true, but I was talking about taxpayer money. Other true things, Maisie Hirono can't dunk. Yes, both are true, but not very informative to the conversation. Many, many, many people wanted me to know that senators are garbage. Senators aren't worth anything. Senators don't do anything for us. But you know, some senators try to do things for us. Isn't criticizing the 47 non-Republicans who all, for instance, voted for Trump's conviction and who all wanted to pass a sizable COVID stimulus, criticizing them is worthless. Isn't it just validating Mitch McConnell's entire point in the world? It's a little like saying, to use another NBA analogy, you know, Kobe White is worthless because Hassan Whiteside blocked him. And also Hassan Whiteside is worthless because his presence causes blocks to happen and scoring to be overall lower in the game. Think about it this way. You have two groups of senators, the group that wants progress and the group that blocks it. Let's not even say progress, too vague. Let's just say the COVID relief bill, okay? If you're on the, I want a COVID relief package side and you didn't get yours, can't blame senators. You got to blame the senators that blocked it. And by the way, if you are very happy that a very sizable billion dollar plus COVID relief bill wasn't enacted, you should be saying, you know what? That Mitch McConnell, there's a guy who really earns his money, should earn more. He's something like the Hassan Whiteside of the Senate. He rendered his opponents 
worthless seeming. My big takeaway from this tweet that got, uh, as of this recording, 22 million impressions on Twitter, 22 million, is that people really, really, really like the NBA more than they like the Senate. Also, they think it's much more of a meritocracy, even though no woman has ever played in the NBA. And finally, I conclude that Mitch McConnell is great at his job because his job is to render the body he oversees so inert and to inspire such loathing for the institution that people are angry, angry that you even suggest perhaps we should consider a compensation package, you know, slightly commensurate with the power that could be wielded. I don't know. Maybe you'll attract a better class of aspirant. Maybe those in power will be able to tend to their jobs and not, you know, spend time positioning family members as lobbyists in order to monetize their position. Maybe public officials would stick around for a while rather than flee to the private sector if they could, you know, just lead lower upper class lifestyles while having to maintain homes in two different cities. I don't know. Maybe Timothy Mozgov is a decent paint presence with a high rebound rate. But you know what? Maybe next time I'll just tweet this. It will take Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez 149.5 years at her current job to earn what Jimmy Garoppolo got paid this year. She's a member of Congress, not a senator. He's a football player, not a basketball player. He's white. She's Latina. It's totally, totally different. But of course, it is the exact same point I was making with that tweet that got 23 million people to look at it. And to answer the most frequent question that people ask me, what was my point? I don't know. I guess it's that I didn't realize Margaret Hamilton was that young. And that's it for today's show. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. She is ruining the day she did not approve my spinoff show, Counterintuitive Senate Stan. It's just for Senate files. I love all senators. I just go on and on about my love of Josh Hawley and Sheldon Whitehouse and Bernie Sanders and Mike Crapo. Senators got to get paid. Man, I missed a huge promotional opportunity to get behind that point. The gist. In the future, I shall endeavor to have zero likes for any of my tweets because without a denominator, there can be no ratio. Umpru depru dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>